0: Welcome to the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. Today's podcast was recorded on Monday the 28th of March 2011 and features David Atwell. The title of David's talk is Catching the Wave, Confessions of a Digital Opportunist and the talk is introduced by Laura Rickey. Thanks for coming tonight. Um, it's good to see everybody on such a nice day. Um, so, welcome to our very last publishing seminar of this semester, end of the year. Um, we have a really, really great guest tonight. Um, We—he is a man that he—he'll be the first to tell you he wears a lot of hats and he's a really unique figure in the publishing industry. Um, He's—if you want to know what's going on publishing today and what's going to be happening soon, this is the guy to ask. So. Would you please join me in welcoming Mr. David Atwell. Thank you, Laura. Great rhythm section, eh? Uh, That's Fela Kuti, um, and that was the noise that I heard when I arrived in Ibadan for my first job uh, in a steamy bar in Nigeria for OUP in 1971. Uh, I'll come back to that. Um, music plays quite an important part in my life, and so you're going to have to put up with about four bits of music dotted through uh, this talk, partly to keep you awake, uh, partly to release my inner DJ, and partly because, partly because it's vaguely relevant occasionally to uh, what I'm talking about. Um, so, to start off with, you had the great Dave Holland uh, playing Metamorphosis, actually Metamorphos, he calls it, uh, which, for those of you who aren't uh, classical scholars, means shape changing. and. I think partly uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, what I gather is in the uh, trade HR trade called a protean career. That means changing shape. And I think actually most of you are going to find that's true of you going forward. Um, More will be revealed later, Uh, but the the fellow is a Nigerian memento. Back a year before that, I left uni not having a clue what I wanted to do. Uh, But I did know that I wanted to go to the States to hear some music. Uh, and I arrived in New York and stayed with a friend's family. And knew I wanted to get to Chicago for the blues and uh, to New Orleans and all the various Detroit, all places where there's going to be great music. But I didn't have enough money. Um, so I walked into a bookshop thinking, you know, I read English, I know about books, I can, I can sell books. And uh, amazingly got a job. Uh, uh, it was a night shift in a, a shop called Marlborough, which is, eventually became two generations on at Barnes & Noble in the Upper East Side. Uh, and I was working from six till two in the morning, and then we had great tequila parties. The manager was a Mexican guy afterwards. Um, but the kind of the learning bit to do with publishing out of that was that I actually realized that there's, you know, there's something behind books, there's a business here. And I actually got quite interested in the business who is it that makes these things? And, uh, what's the kind of infrastructure behind it? Um, so I went back after touring around the States and listening to lots of music and uh, wrote lots of application letters, as you do, and surprisingly got an interview with. In fact, I got an interview with Macmillan and OUP and chose OUP. Uh, And the interview was mostly, as I remember it, about being a bricklayer's mate uh, and playing drums in my school band in Frankfurt Um, and nothing at all about the studies that I had and so on. But anyway, they gave me a job and they found me around different departments. Uh, And the different departments was also a learning experience because uh, I actually realised there's a whole process here. Again. From the outside, nobody knows the whole process here, but they found me around production, editorial, design, sales, marketing. I thought this is is actually a pretty fascinating process. Um, And I knew when I joined up this graduate trainee scheme, as it then was, that I was going to be sent off to some far flung corner of the world. And the first job that came up was a job in Nigeria. And I was already into, because I play drums, Nigerian music, hence the fella clip that I just played. So I went, me, please. Nigeria, uh, and found myself in Nigeria just after the Civil War in 1971. It's back in the dark ages, folks, so I did warn you, this is 40 years I'm talking about. Um, and it turned out, my first big bit of luck, I think, um, it turned out to be a fantastic time and an awful time to learn about publishing. Fantastic time because in the Nigerian branch, which is really well run by a Nigerian uh, managing director, Nigerian salesman, a Nigerian uh, chairman, uh, there were two expats of whom I was one. But you kind of had to do everything, and you got involved in every different aspect of creating what were mostly textbooks. I did get to work with one Nobel (coughs) Prize winner, the only Nobel Prize winner I've ever worked with, Walu Inca. But mostly it was school textbooks, uh, English, maths, science. Um, The good and the terrible aspect of this was that uh, they had a relatively competent government at the time, and the economy was in relatively good shape. And they decided to use the oil money to fund, for the first time ever, universal primary education. And in a country like Nigeria, where they had 70 million people under 16, that was a big deal, uh, state-run universal primary education. And all these poor kids had were Janet and John colonial textbooks left from the 40s and 50s um, that were totally inappropriate. So it didn't take a great genius to say, you know, hey, there are bright teachers here, and you can link them up with acts back in the UK who know how to put together textbooks of whom OUP had zillions. Um, And the terrible bit of it was that the books that I worked on nearly all sold millions and millions of copies. So really from from there on my publishing career went downhill because it was such a fantastic market at the time. Um, So that taught me something about market forces and making connections about market demand. Next step, back from Nigeria I joined what was then a brand new for OUP. I mean, OUP was really up with the times, paperback department. You know, I know Penguin had started paperback 30 years earlier, but OUP formed paperback department in 1974. Hitherto, uh, they'd done the occasional paperback, but it had never been planned as a, as a thing. Um, so I joined another piece of luck, paperback department. Um, and even more lucky I was uh, that I joined, at those days, OUP had an Oxford office, of course, but also a big London office where all the overseas offices were. Run and ELT was run out of the London office in a huge decadent Bishop's Palace, 18th century Bishop's Palace. It was uh, built, built for the Bishops of Elyon, had a sweeping marble staircase, uh, which was used for kind of costume dramas. And um, uh, anyway, they closed down the London office and moved a raggle taggle band of us who decided to move up to Oxford. And my then boss of this small paper department decided to take the redundancy and run and go and spend time in, in, um, uh, in France. Quite sensibly, really. Uh, and I, at the age of 24, 25, found myself managing this small paper department to four or five people in this new area for OUP. It's a big bit of luck um, uh, when we moved up to, uh, uh, to Walton Street. Um, there's a blogger that I do recommend those of you who are interested in what's happening in the e world called Mike Shatskin. Uh, the Shatskin files uh, are worth. Uh, plugging into if you're <coughs> following all of this. Uh, and Mike Schatzkin wrote a blog recently about how similar he thought the whole rush to ebooks was to the rush to paperbacks in the early days uh, of publishing um, as quite a series of interesting parallels which I won't repeat because you can go and look it up on the web. Um, but um, I found myself with this growing paperback department realizing that sooner or later we were going to have to compete with Penguin, not just sort of say we were doing paperbacks and put soft covers around the things. And we started for the first time in paperback Uh, World's Classics, which those of you who read literature may have bought a few of. Uh, Before that, believe it or not, World's Classics were in that nice retro hardback format where the only place they sold, the only place we sold them to, was Foils in Charing Cross Road because they were in a huge case. It was specially built for those dinky little hardbacks. And they were so easy to shoplift that people would put them in their pockets (laughs) on the way out. So we got paid for the Hardback World's Classics and that was about the only place they sold. We realised we were going to have to compete with Penguin Classics properly. And to compete properly wasn't just an editorial challenge, we had all the academics and the the scholarly texts and so on, Um, it was to do with the whole chain uh, which included production and included distribution. And I found myself running this tiny little department but also we had a then absolutely awful distribution operation in Leesden that took weeks and weeks and weeks to get a book out the door. And we could not possibly compete with Penguin at the distribution end, let alone anything else. So I found myself starting a distribution shed. It's my only time of distribution in Park Royal. That's that sexy bit of London you come through on the X-90 and the, and the, and the Oxford Tube. Um, just an empty shed so we could uh, so have a distribution system that compete with Penguin. The lesson from this, I think, and I'm sort of trying to tease out things from the cautionary tales that I'm going to tell you, is that it's worth thinking about the process that you're involved in. It was no good just commissioning great um, editions of Jane Austen, or whatever it might be. They had to be packaged right, they had to be produced uh, economically, they had to be designed well, but they also right through to the the sales and marketing, the discounts, all of that stuff, but the distribution end as well. Um, It's a continuous process, and you have to think the whole thing through. And although you may end up in a large corporation where you're in one little silo, for your career and for your own sanity, think across the silos. Don't just let yourself be boxed in. I'll come back to that. Um, I then um, took on more responsibility as a hardback list for OUP, uh, where finally it began to be a bit more holistic. We weren't just doing paperbacks and hardbacks entirely separately, we were planning the things together. And then in 1983, I got a job in New York, running, uh, starting really, a new reference list for OUP in the States. And it's a bit like the paperback story. I mean, although you think of OUP in reference, in the States, they'd only ever done occasionally a reference book, they'd never planned it as a coherent thing. Um, And what that taught me, among other things, was the incredible strength of brands. Wandering around universities and, and places in the States with the OUP brand, signing up reference. Books was, I wouldn't say a doddle, but it was a dream job. It was absolutely fantastic, and we were able to sign up big multi volume academic reference things and also trade titles and started uh, a reference list on the basis of, well, me and a half an assistant, really. It's now, I think about how many people at OUP in New York now, Sheila? About 30 people in reference? Something like that. Um, So, you know, again, it was a, a startup on the basis of a huge brand strength and being able to use the infrastructure of the organization. I also got to hear lots of jazz in New York, which is good. Um, but coming to the point of the evening, or one of the points of this evening, was um, most of my career up to that point had been pretty straightforwardly analogue. The first book I ever actually had to proofread was on computer paper with parallel green lines. Uh, only older people in the room will remember that. Uh, it was called The African Encyclopedia, and that was my first job as a graduate trainee. But in those days, the first 15 years of my career, when people talked about uh, electronic publishing, they meant using computers to typeset. Um That was it, you know, then you output. Anyway, 1984, appropriately, an Orwellian year was my epiphany on the road to whatever, Damascus equivalent. Um, two things happened. First of all, in 1984, OUP decided that they needed to do a new edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, which was in some 20 volumes, I can never remember the exact number volumes, and then there was a supplement to the Oxford English Dictionary that was done from 1930 to 1970, volumes one to four. And we got to the rather odd place where we were thinking about doing a supplement to the supplement to the Oxford English Dictionary in print volumes. Now, come 1984, people were beginning to think about databases. Um, and so we decided to create a database to enable us to do an integrated print set. No thought of electronic publishing, but an integrated print set. Um, And the guys who were designing the database were a mixture of people, the whole consortium involved. But the really bright techies were in a place in Canada called the University of Waterloo. Uh, And I remember when they were beginning to um, basically translate the 19th century typography of the OED uh, that uh, Murray had designed into separate database tags so that parts of speech, definitions, uh, etymologies, citations, and so forth were all tagged separately as a data set. And they were also tagged by subject fields. And the guy, the, the sort of boffin at uh, the University of Waterloo, when I was working in, uh, in New York, I was at the kind of US end of uh, Stringer for this large global operation, uh, said, OK, you know, ask it not one question, but two questions. You can ask a book one question, you can ask a database two questions at once. So I thought I was a real smart ass, and I said, um, mm-hmm. OK, give me all the quotations from Shakespeare that have an Arabic etymology. And he went 30 seconds later, he had four, no, I think it was actually six examples the word assassin, I can't remember. But there were words like that. So I said, OK, thinking of history, what about all the words to do with politics that came into the English language in the 1640s during the Civil War? And again something like 45 new words were coined during the English Civil War. That was my moment when I realized, actually, databases do something different from books. They're not better than books, they're different. It would have taken an, a scholar God knows how many years to find either of those answers by going through the print, the print version. The other bit of my Orwellian conversion year in uh, 1984 was I got to go to um, the new media lab in Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Which has since acquired kind of cult status. Um, and there were lots of cool guys in 1984 wandering around in black. Um, and they had all this stuff with wires. And it was the first time I'd ever seen any multimedia. Uh, and they had, sexy thing this was, a multimedia guide to how to change a particular part of an engine. I think it was a sump, in uh, a truck. Uh, and you had the text, you know, how you do it, usual manual, change sump sprocket C, Flange, C, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then they had a bit of audio, I' had that before, linked it with a text, and then they had graphics that linked into different bits of the text, and then they had video, and you know, my jaw was kind of hitting the floor at this point because I'd never seen any of this, I know, nor actually anybody else in publishing in 1984. Uh, so those two things really gave me the kind of taste for what now we would call digital publishing can begin to do. Uh, now, it took a long time for that to turn into anything like what you might recognize as digital publishing. Um, I came back in 1983 from New York uh, and had a job um, doing uh, reference dictionaries and general trade stuff um, and uh, helped fight dictionary wars against Collins and we began to license electronic rights to a little firm called Wang, which we uh, got a lot of money for at the time. Um, and so I began to learn among other things, and during that job, about managing tribes. We had 90 lexicographers in the staff uh, full-time and about 50 other publishers. So it's so a lot about the sort of anthropology of managing different tribes and their expectations. And I think you'll come across this in your, uh, in your careers too. Um, different people have different expectations and different ways of being satisfied in their jobs. Um, then 1989, after 18 years at AUP, 18, 19 years at AUP, Uh, it was really time to move on. And I was seduced to uh, mass market publishing in London um, by an entrepreneur who you might have read about in the trade press called Anthony Cheetham, uh, who then ran a business called Century Hutchinson. And he asked me to run uh, a very down-market paperback business called Arrow. And I was feeling like a bit of kind of, you know, uh, rough after years and years of be So I thought, yeah, you know, thrillers and uh, schlock. um, (laughs) And I... uh, took the job uh, running Arrow, which is about number five in the market, and didn't have any very well-known authors or much marketing money. But we spent an awful lot of time designing covers. I think which is the cue for the next bit of music. <laughs> Those of you with good eyesight can see that that rather eccentric version of Bo Diddley's classic was done by the splendidly named Spanky Wilson. Um, I couldn't resist that. Uh, So we put lots of foil on these books, and we uh, spent a lot of time designing them. And and again, another bit of luck, bing, there was uh, a a sensible takeover of Century Hutchinson by what was then known as Random House UK, which is Cape (laughs) Chateau Bodley Head. And Cape Chateau Bodley Head were slightly, at that point, dozy hardback outfits. But they owned stacks and stacks of copyrights, including about half of the Penguin List and half of the Puffin List. And so I was sitting on top of a division uh, there was the paperback division is now this merged or temporarily was called random century um, uh, able to revert all these rights from Penguin particularly um, and we were, had a wonderful time we started Vintage um, which was great fun to start with I mean, I know you, many of you will think about Vintage has been around forever but started in uh, uh, 1989, 1990 um, and Red Fox uh, those of you who are in children's publishing um, and that was really driven by The intellectual property. So another lesson out of this, control the intellectual property. Uh, In the old days, old school publishing, you had a hardback publisher and a paperback publisher and the twain didn't meet except through an arm's length contract relationship. Now it's the norm to have what then became known as vertical integration. Um, But owning the intellectual property and exploiting it through through those platforms was absolutely critical. while I was at uh, this rather strange agglomeration of Century Hutchinson Random House, I tripped up over a thing called the Hutchinson Encyclopedia, which, in these days of the Wikipedia and so on, uh, it has much less resonance than it did then. But it was the one-volume best-selling encyclopedia in the UK and had been since oh, I don't know the 1920s. Um, and there was a little database and a very bright guy running it, uh, and. He wasn't being given much support because in Hutchinson they published Kingsley Amers and Ruth Rendell and all sorts of, sort of sexy trade things, and the Encyclopaedia kind of didn't really fit. Um, but anyway, because I'd been doing reference at OUP, they asked me to run a reference division as well as a paperback division, and that was fine. I enjoyed that, and we enjoyed playing around. We did the very first CD-ROM of that in 1990, um, and believe it or not, we did a handheld disc for a Sony reader in 1991 called the Sony Data Discman I was looking to try and find it with a wonderful piece of retro kit but I couldn't find it anyway, Sony Data Discman we did in 1991 mm-hmm. um, and uh, I was getting the bug for all of this stuff uh, and was in New York again on a business trip uh, mainly talking about paperbacks with Random House New York but went to see my chums in Random House Reference and they had a big dictionary department of lexicographers doing the main college dictionary in the States the Random House College Dictionary and the week I was there The man, and you may need to edit this out of the podcast, named after two hairsprays, as they said in New York, uh, Alberto Vitale, who then ran uh, OUP New York, um, closed down the dictionary department. I thought, ah, okay, I see where this is going. I got back off the plane uh, in London and went to see Anthony Heacham and I said, you're not going to be encouraged to invest in this growing database uh, where we've got all these electronic opportunities. Um, because you're going to be squeezed for cash because Alberto Vitale and their management in Random House New York are actually moving away from reference and moving more into high-profile frontless trade. Um, and we agreed, in principle, a management buyout which a year later and 3 sets of Random House lawyers uh, later we managed to achieve on St. Patrick's Day uh, in 1992. I actually rather like the little um, green... Chamrocks. Did anybody notice them in St Patrick's Day last week? And the and the lights down the, um, down the road. Anyway, um, what became uh, through the management um, management buyout, Helicon in 1992. And Sheila worked there. Angus Phillips worked there, and a number of other Brooks alumni uh, who are uh, loosely associated with this grand emporium were involved in Helicon. It's a whole Helican helicon mafia, um, and. Uh, when I looked at back at my career, which I wasn't very good at doing, uh, to that point, I realised that mainly what I really enjoyed doing in my career, and I've, you may have picked this up already, was starting things up. If, if you're a, uh, an anthropologist, I think I'd be defined as a hunter-gatherer rather than a, uh, an agrarian farmer. Um, and um, to use a, a kind of business terminology, uh, i moved from being an entrepreneur to an entrepreneur. And we started um, uh, Helicon backed by some business angels who included Tim Waterston um, and didn't invest enough, uh, raise enough money, as startups usually don't. Um, But uh, one thing I did realize was that a book that I published in paperback back at Century Hutchinson in 1989 this is my only prop here um, Charles Handy's The Age of Unreason, and I'm not big on management gurus was a book that subliminally I had really absorbed. Because we set up the company almost exactly as he predicted, Companies of the Future will be set up. And I mentioned Sir Patrick's Day. One of his theories was that Companies of the Future will be a shamrock organization. They'll have three leaves. There'll be a hard-working core of full-time people. There'll be another leaf of uh, freelance casual workers who come and go. um, And there'll be another leaf of outsourced work. And instead of having one big box, which is the kind of 1950s, 1960s, 1970s model of a corporation, more and more that would be the way that business would go. He also had a um, a theory around, horrible word, subsidiarity, which means you delegate as low as possible responsibility to the person who can then do the job, not overmanage somebody who is perfectly competent to do the job themselves. And the third thing that uh, Charles Handy said, I'll come back to a fourth thing later, was that um, there are three I's in the organizations of the future. And they're going to control intelligence, information, or intellectual property, and ideas. And those are going to be the real capital of businesses of the future. And I realized that actually we set up Helicon around that that sort of idea. Um, The thing about digital publishing generally uh, is that it's a team sport. Traditionally, uh, print publishing is kind of like a relay. You know, you start with the commissioning editor, and you pass the baton all the way down through uh, copy editing, production, design, sales, marketing, out to the warehouse, eventually a bookshop. And if you're really lucky, somebody over there might buy it. Um, but if all your uh, all your investment is in one way of earning your money back, and we got lots of things wrong at Helicon, uh, which I'm first to admit that the thing we got right was the idea that we are creating intellectual property and that we are designing it so that it is platform independent. We can output in any way that the market chooses to buy. Now in those days, this is 1992 remember, uh, most of the people were choosing to buy books still. We did big fat print encyclopedias, we did little dictionaries of science, all sorts of things. But um, we were positioning ourselves for doing more of these handheld things, CD-ROMs, and 1994, online encyclopedias. Um, And that was absolutely critical. Uh, I don't know about you, but I didn't get into publishing to sell paper. I don't see myself as a paper salesman. Uh, If you think sort of existentially, what does a publisher do? They don't make things. They don't actually print the books. They don't actually write them. you have to define what it is that you're adding value to. But it's certainly not selling a commodity like paper, in my view. So, the basic principle I think we got right was platform independence. Um, We published in lots of formats and uh, as I said, we moved online We the things we got wrong were probably we were over-seduced by sexy new formats. So we did things for Commodore, CDTV, nobody's ever heard of that now. Uh, we did the Sony Data Disman. They paid us to do it, but you know, it didn't get anywhere. Um, and I feel powerfully that this is happening with apps right now. I think there's going to be app-pathy uh, coming up. No, 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 I, I don't know about all of you, but I can only hold about eight or nine apps that I actually use on my iPhone. Uh, how many people are really going to make a beeline for a destination site for a particular publisher for a particular product? Now, I think there is a danger of over the latest new fad. Whereas if you're designing your intellectual property so you can output in lots of different ways, you have more chance of getting your money back. Um, in print, because we had this database, we probably produced too many, in fact I'm sure we did produce too many different books out of the database because we could. You know, so we did a big encyclopedia of history and a medium sized encyclopedia of history and a little encyclopedia of history. a Tiny encyclopedia of history. market didn't want all of those. Um, so to, just because you can, uh, is not a good reason to do it. Um, anyway, lots of things we learned. Uh, one of the big learnings was most the most terrible Frankfurt book fair I ever had in 1995, when on the first morning of a very full-booked Frankfurt, we were just about to launch our new all-singing, all-dancing CD-ROM. And this is in the days when we were selling 100,000 year of our CD-ROM encyclopedia. Real business. Um, we were just about to launch it, and Microsoft were about to come out with a competing thing called Encarta. Then. Never been published then before. Um, and the first morning I had a phone call on the stand rather oddly from our bank manager saying, did you know that your software developer had just gone bust uh, owing you £150,000? And not only were they our software developer but they were also our route into the US market. They were our distributor. And it was the most awful fair. Because um, I had to kind of be talking to shareholders who are going to share, thank God for supportive shareholders at the time, who are going to buttress us uh, at the same time as stall all the deals for the new Encyclopedia CD-ROM that we were just about to launch. So, lesson from that is, when you are doing digital stuff, as many of you will be doing, do not put your software development in the same box as your distribution. Keep them entirely separate. Uh, At least you're insulated from one disaster rather than double whammy. We survived that. And oddly, in fact, uh, Microsoft came in as the U.S. cavalry on day five of Frankfurt and decided to invest in us because we were beginning to do some databases from for, for Microsoft. So Microsoft found themselves investing in this rather odd little outfit in Hyde's Bridge Street uh, above a Chinese restaurant where you had the smell of garlic prawns coming up through the floorboards. Um, and we were the only publisher that they were invested in at that point in the world. Um, and when they came to see us, they were <laughs> astonished. Um, anyway. There's another Microsoft story that's relevant, which is, although we had a deal with, in, with Microsoft, they were investors, and we were doing some database development for them, we were also simultaneously competing with this Encarta thing, which was a, a very uh, low-priced then CD-ROM encyclopedia. Their first edition wasn't very good. Their second edition was much better and more UK-centric, as often happens with Microsoft software. Um, and we thought, my God, what are we going to do? How can we compete with the might of Microsoft, a tiny little company? And um, we went back to square one, and we said, OK, our encyclopedia is mostly bought by families with kids coming up to doing GCSE. Um, it's written by teachers. It's geared around the curriculum. It's uh, aimed at a very specific market. It has other markets that it gets to as well. But those are the, that's the core market. And we decided to put in it that the government had just come up with a core curriculum then. Key Stage 4, Key Stage 3. This is all quite familiar to the UK people now. But it was new then. And we decided to put in a curriculum index where you could say, as well as you know, who's the president of South Africa or you know, whatever, um, you could say, I'm doing Key Stage 4 history. What do I do? And it had a kind of taxonomy of articles going on from what you should read, core article, further reading, other places out on the web you might go. And this curriculum index sounds a simple idea but actually enabled us to hold off Microsoft and maintain ourselves for a year or two thereafter. So that was real value. And what that taught me, and this is something really fundamental, I think, is that on the web and intelle- intellectual property generally, digitally, signposts are more valuable than destinations. Think about it. Who are the most valuable companies since the advent of the Internet in a big way? Back in the dark ages that I was talking about, in the 1980s, com, everybody thought yeah, Time Warner, the huge content companies, they were going to be completely controlling the web. Uh-uh. It's as though the Society of Index has done a coup and taken over the whole of publishing. It's Google. Why Google? Because they have the signposts. They are there. They enable you to find immediately material that is relevant to you, specific to your inquiry, when you want it. Signposts are really, really valuable. Think about your taxonomies in the internet property you're controlling. We, uh, I won't give you the whole corporate saga, but we uh, floated on the little stock market and the signpost idea was, brought, was really uh, cl- latched onto by the smartest fund managers who supported our, our float on the stock market. W.H. Smith's uh, then uh, loomed into view, oddly. Least uh, likely characters. We had a chairman who was sitting on top of a bus, uh, and he was rung up uh, by a double glazing salesman. And he just put the phone down, and his mobile rang again. And he thought it was a double glazing salesman again. And he was about to be really, really rude. And it was the chairman of W. Smith saying, are you the chairman of uh, this company called Helicon? Because we'd be interested in making a bid. And uh, it turned into uh, a bid for the company. Uh, They bought it outright. Uh, This is at a time when W. Smith thought they were a content company they just bought a little, another little Oxford techie business called the Oxford um, uh, the Internet Bookshop. Um, and that, they had software in the UK for internet book selling longer before Amazon. Um, and for about five minutes, we were the center of W. Smith's strategy, Sheila remembers this. Um, and we, ha- we helped organize a content portal where we aggregated lots of content. So again, this taxonomy mapping thing comes into that, um, and that was one of the reasons why uh, Smith's bought us not so much because of the 24 million words of data we already had, but our capability of organising material and guiding people around uh, content maps. Um, again, I, I could I could sort of uh, carry on with, uh, with the W. Smith story, but I'll I'll, I'll stop there and, and then say uh, Smith, well, well in love with this for five minutes, then they had a ton of problems in the US, lost a lot of business, decided to. rein in research and development of which we were part and so we helped sell Helicon business on to uh, a company called Research Machines local computer um, uh, supplying company that sold boxes, networks and then by extension online information they brought out a massive revenue stream um, because we were charging a lot of money for royalties that they were using of our material and at that point um, most of us left Helicon. and I was faced in 2002 with a decision uh, of what to do next. And I decided I wasn't really employable by any corporation. I couldn't imagine working for anybody else in a, in a large corporation. Um, did I want to start another new business again, the same kind of lines, not sure. Didn't really want shareholders again, didn't want an overdraft and a bank manager again. I wasn't sure about lots and lots of employees that we were managing. Um, and didn't really want to take an office building all of that and back to charles handy he was talking about portfolio careers back in the 1980s and i actually thought this portfolio thing sounds quite fun really um and there are lots of articles these days about how you can do deals at home in your pajamas well actually i do sometimes do deals in my pajamas Uh, but um the portfolio idea appealed to me enormously it enabled me to start a new business and um, our clients, our first clients were research machines who uh, said, okay, we'll give you X amount um, per month to carry on flogging the data sets that you've been selling to Americans. Um, and that was what I think the Chinese might call a rice bowl, uh, where you know you're going to get you know, some rice, even if you don't have tasty morsels to put on top of it, if you have two days a month of, of guaranteed business. So in a portfolio, it always helps to have a rice bowl, something that's kind of carrying on, um, and I set up uh, what is now you called Apple Associates, and Apple Associates is two businesses really. It's a consultancy business, and we do lots of consultancy of all sorts, uh, including I chair, a little university press in Liverpool, and various other uh, ad hoc things. Uh, but the bit that is really going gangbusters at the moment is a digital licensing agency, and we represent about 25 different publishers. If you like, like an outsourced rights department, selling their electronic rights to U.S., Uh, Mainly, uh, but some Far Eastern, some European uh, online companies, and increasingly now into the mobile markets as well. Um, And the digital licensing agency uh, keeps uh, me and a number of associates uh, Claire Painter, particularly, who some of you know, uh, Laura, who's doing a friendly job doing research with us uh, of work experience. Um, And uh, it's, I think, uh, inevitable that the biggest companies will gradually bring in their online licensing in-house it, but it took them a long time. We were at D- Dorling Kindersley's licensing agency for six or seven years and they have 60 or 70 people their in their rights department uh, and they finally took it in-house last year. So our portfolio these days, if you look at our website, um, is mainly small and middle-sized businesses, which is where I'd expected us to be. Uh, and our assets are Experience, um, networks, particularly. Um, we hope some brains. Uh, we have no office. I work from home. Claire works from home. We are a virtual business in that sense. Um, all uh, our associates are self-employed and work ad hoc. So when there's a three days' work at uh, the London Book Fair for uh, my associates, then they get uh, they charge their day rate uh, for that time, but they also work at other times working for OEP or various other people. Um, and I think this is increasingly going to be a 21st century business model. I think that the days of massive office blocks, the days of massive corporations with people sitting, bombs on seats in the same places, uh, with static hierarchies, is less and less likely to be the case. Um, and I think that you will find these trends in your careers increasingly, um, particularly after you're perhaps 10 years into your careers. Uh, when you might want to sort of think of starting up your own businesses, developing, and so on. Anyway, how are you going to get freedom in your careers? Well, again, I'm going to come back to Charles Handy, the guru that I've mentioned throughout, and I'll read one little bit of his book. Um, he said, I wait, Once I waited outside the door of the personnel manager of the multinational company of my youth. A wily old Scot passed by, a veteran of that place, and a wise counsellor. What are you waiting for, laddie? he asked. I'm waiting to see what they're planning for me. Invest in yourself, my boy. Don't wait for them. Invest in yourself. If you don't, why should they? So, invest in yourselves. Think laterally when you have opportunities in the jobs across the businesses. How does the business really work? And not just across the business where you are, but increasingly, and I think the trade publishers are slowest at this, but increasingly, publishers are organizing themselves globally. So, you might find your boss in Rome. Uh, you're working with a team in New York Uh, you have colleagues in Stockholm Uh, I think again as I said the trade publishers I think are last to move this way but the STM publishers who are usually leading science technical medical publishers uh, trends in this area have been organised laterally like this um, for some time so think geographically in a lateral way as well Um, think about how you're building skills, um, but don't get stuck in a silo. Try very hard not to just be a functional specialist in one place and stuck there forever. Think about what the market opportunities are. They might be digital. You're the digital generation. I'm a digital immigrant. Uh, Most of you are digital digital natives. That's a great advantage that you guys have. Um, Though I think actually paradoxically, it occurred to me the other day, Uh, I don't know if any of you are into music zines, but there's a great little show at the O3 Gallery at the Castle site of all these self-published little CDs and and, uh, retro cassettes and things where people are producing beautifully packaged objects. And it occurred to me that actually as books gradually get eroded and commodified by the digital market, there's going to be quite a sort of fetishistic market for beautiful books or original books. And there could be quite, quite an interesting career opportunity around that Actually, thinking about books as desirable objects per se. Yeah. That's a, maybe a niche market. Um, but think about market opportunities, where the market's going. Uh, and know yourself. Know what you're good at, what you're interested in. Follow your passion. You know, the, as I said, I didn't get into publishing to be a paper merchant. You all got into publishing probably for different reasons. But follow your passions. Don't, don't let people beat your passion out of you. I think that's probably enough. Thank you very much. Let's